0: All right, Psalm 41 this evening. If you'll turn there with me as we continue our study through the book of Psalms together, Psalm 41, we get another Psalm of David here. We're told that David begins this Psalm again by lifting up praise to the Lord, by telling us, blessed, he says, uh, is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. And the Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. And he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness, and you will sustain him on his sick bed. Now, we can't be certain, but it is pretty strongly believed from the context of some of the things we see David saying here, as well as some internal evidence in other places in scripture that it's likely the time frame around when david may have penned some of these things seem to have been around the occasion where his son absalom if you remember led a rebellion against his father when david was reigning as king and because of some family affairs that took place that amnon one of the sons of david had raped his sister tamar and david unfortunately uh sort of becoming weak in certain areas of his life because of his own sins and mistakes, it seems, with Bathsheba, uh, found it difficult to kind of at times find the backbone to address certain sins in the lives of other people and even in his own children. And because he himself had been guilty of sexual sin, it seems that David struggled with confronting Amnon with this sin. And Absalom, remember, one of the other brothers, was very angry and incensed because of this. And he was upset not only what had happened with his sister Tamar and what amnon his half brother had done to violate her, uh, but even more angry at his father that he wasn 't dealing in a righteous way with this sin within the family, uh, and he began to despise his father for not if you would sort of manning up and being righteous enough to deal with wrongdoing in the family and the problems and issues that existed and this began to seem to drive a wedge between david and absalom and this just further deteriorated and ultimately absalom uh we're told eventually got to the place where it says he literally began to steal away the hearts of the people of israel remember he would hang around the gate and it says that he would say well you know if you really want to wait for my father well ultimately at some point i'm sure he could see you but if i were the king If I were the king and and if I were in charge, I would lead this way or I would do things better that way. And ultimately, he began to kind of woo the hearts of the people to himself and ultimately led a complete rebellion to usurp the throne from David, his father. And even Ahithophel, one of David's strong counselors who had been with him for many, many years, his close friend uh, abandoned David. And David kind of got pushed off the throne for a season and was kind of off wandering, and rather than staying and fighting uh, there for the throne, uh, David kind of took his hands off and felt like, well, look, if the Lord wants me on the throne, then uh, he'll keep me on the throne, uh, and I'm not going to let it disturb me, and he didn't want to see more bloodshed come upon the people there in Jerusalem, so rather than take a stand, he kind of just let Absalom do his thing for a while. Ultimately, God dealt with absalom and god always deals with rebels i found that over the years you know you don't always have to resist a rebel Um, rebellion in itself is a self-destructive path Uh, god bible says he, he you know opposes or resists the proud he gives grace to the humble and so ultimately absalom came to his own downfall but david for a season dealt with a lot of pain and grief because of some of these things and difficulties. And uh, it seems in some ways this could have been the context that David was saying some of these things. And we'll see when he gets further down in the psalm where he begins to talk about those who are mocking and despising him. And even verse 9, he says, Even my own familiar friend whom I trusted, who I ate bread together with, even he's, turned his back on me and kind of you know, became a traitor and brought great harm into David's life, probably referring to Ahithophel there in some of those statements. But as David begins this psalm, he speaks about those who take into consideration those who are in times of hardship, those who are dealing with difficulties. In verse one, he references their blessed, or the idea is, oh, how happy, or how blessed and such a happy experience. That's the idea of our word blessed there, to experience happiness and goodness from the lord a blessed life a blessed existence he says is the one who considers that is takes into consideration in their thoughts as well as in their actions not just thinking but actually doing things for he says the poor now when david uses the word poor there the hebrew term he uses is certainly it encompasses and includes the idea of what we might initially think about as far as being poor that is economic Struggle or lack or poverty, but the term that's used there could also be translated weak uh, or helpless. So it seems to be a broader term that's not just only referring to economic poverty or struggle, but also referring to those who are in a weakened condition or in a vulnerable or a helpless state. And the idea is, you know, we might say, wow, that that poor person, not necessarily always referring to economic poverty, right, but all that poor person, you feel sad for them maybe because they're in some difficult condition. And, And that seems to be the idea, that when someone is in that condition where they're suffering, where they're in the midst of a a, a real difficulty, they're in a helpless state, they don't have what they need, they're struggling, David says blessed is the individual who doesn't dismiss those people or just kind of walk by those people or ignore those people, but they actually feel enough of a stirring within themselves to actually give consideration to someone, whether it's, again, economic poverty or whether it's just personal struggle and again remember we see that in the new testament when the story of the good samaritan comes to pass and they're laying on the side of the road is this you know individual all beat up and wounded and had been robbed and kind of you know taken advantage of by bandits and it tells us remember that the religious two religious leaders the the priest and the levite they walked by and they saw him in his helpless poor horrific condition and what did they do uh, i'm on my way to church i don't have time to stop and they just kind of walked by and they didn't even consider his affliction or his difficulty and then it was the samaritan remember who took pity upon him and considered his condition and actually was the one who was concerned and did something to act on his behalf because he considered hey maybe the more important thing right now is to show love to show compassion, to help somebody that's created in the image of God that is hurting and struggling in some way. And that's kind of that New Testament analogy of even what David's referring to here. You know, blessed is that one who considers the poor. Now, let me just say as well from a, a, you know, overall perspective, when the Old Testament speaks of the poor in the sense of the, those struggling economically with poverty, understand from the Old Testament perspective the concept of poor or poverty was the working poor. Unfortunately, we live in a day and age where our mindset of what it means to be poor has become vastly different. You have to understand, in the days of Israel and in the ancient culture, uh, they didn't have government systems taking care of people. Families took care of families, and people responsibly took care of themselves. Uh, you know, even the, the, if you want to call it the uh, poverty or welfare assistance system that god set up under the law remember it was where people would go through their fields and they could glean their fields but when they went through and they glean their fields remember they could only go through one time when they would reap their harvest and anything that was left over they weren't to touch they were to leave that for those in the land who were struggling the poor but again they weren't it doesn't say go through the second time gather baskets full and then go bring the free food to the poor They were to leave it on their branches and in their fields. And then those who were struggling and dealing with economic difficulty, they could come through afterwards and they could pick off and take whatever they wanted in that field that had already been gleaned or harvested one time. And whatever was left, it was God's merciful way to provide something for them. But again, guess what they had to do. They actually had to go work in the field to get some stuff for themselves as well. They didn't just get a handout. They had to actually do something. so they were the working poor and in God's mindset, God has complete compassion. And all throughout the word of God, we see these constant encouragements that God cares about the poor, the needy, that we in love should care about the poor and the needy and the less fortunate to help those who maybe you know, aren't going to be able to pay us back and that we should take that into consideration. Uh, but from God's perspective, he's looking at individuals who are trying to some degree to do their best, but they're still struggling. You know, and that is a a genuine thing, what we would refer to as the the working poor, people who are genuinely trying to do the best that they can, but they're still struggling. Maybe they're still struggling to make ends meet or they're still struggling to keep up with the bills and they're in a situation where they're genuinely trying to do their best, but they're just having difficulty. That's why Paul ultimately gets to the New Testament where he says, you know, that if such a person won't work, then he says, then they don't eat. Uh, He doesn't say if they can't work, See, that's a whole different category. If somebody can't work physically, then God has mercy upon them. There are people who genuinely can't work, but then there are also plenty of people God understands in society, and that's why the word of God addresses it, that won't work. And we're living in part of that right now in the United States of America. Just look at what's going on in our society right now. Part of the reason why there are so many hiring signs is because there are a lot of people that are getting substantiated by our government And they're making better money getting paid by the government than they are to actually go out and work for their own money. And this is a horrible direction for our nation to be going in. Uh, And we're completely confusing ourselves in regards to, oh, we're taking care of the poor. I don't know if that's really what God intended in regards to taking care of what we would call the poor. In some ways, we're incentivizing poverty. We're incentivizing something that's not healthy. And so we need to find this wise balance here and understand whenever God references the poor in the land, this is what the poor in the land was in Israel. When God was you know, giving these encouragements, Hey, help out these individuals that they're genuinely struggling. They're doing their best, but they're, you know, they're not getting by. They have lack and they have families and to take consideration. And, and, and notice God says there's great reward to those who have pity and love and compassion on those in a genuine time of struggle in their lives, whether it's economic poverty or weakness or helplessness. He says, verse one going on, some of the blessings that come upon those who would take consideration of people in these situations. He says, first of all, the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. Verse two, and the Lord will preserve him and keep him alive and he will be blessed on the earth. So you see what God's saying? God's saying, look, if you take pity upon and compassion for those who are in need and you see them and you don't just dismiss them, but you consider and say, okay, maybe God brought this person across my path where I walked and they came into my path. And so I'm going to take consideration of their condition and try and help them. God says, you do that and don't worry, I'll take care of you. You know, see what God says there? He says, the Lord will deliver him, the one who does such in the time of his trouble. So God's almost saying, you know, we use that term pay it forward. You know, we talk about sowing and reaping. This is the idea. Hey, that person's in trouble. You help them in their trouble. God says, great, don't worry. I saw you did that. So then when you're in trouble, I'll make sure I take care of you in your time of trouble because what you sow, you'll reap. And God says, and I'll make sure that my blessing for you is that I'll preserve you and keep you alive, verse two. And he says, and you'll be blessed in the earth. And this makes complete sense to show how much God understands us. Because if we were to be honest, a lot of times, sometimes why we won't get involved on occasion to help someone if we see they have a need, whether it's, again, a financial need or whether it's just our time or anything. A lot of times, the reason that we don't do such things is because of our own lack of belief and self-preservation that we all struggle with because we're all selfish by nature. And we're thinking, well, I got my own bills to pay. Like, I mean, I got to make sure I pay my bills or what if I have a need? If I have a need, then I won't be able to take care of my need. And so sometimes... We hedge and we're hesitant on being gracious or helpful to someone else because of our own self-preservation, thinking, well, if I help somebody else, then who's going to help me in my time of trouble? And God says, you help someone else, and I'll help you. (laughs) I'll help you in your time of trouble. The book of Proverbs tells us that he who lends to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him. And so here, David understanding this begins to speak about this very reality. And again, I don't know, as David states these things here, perhaps David was even thinking about himself in his own difficult condition because David was in a difficult time, kind of pushed out in the wilderness. And maybe he was in that condition of being the king, but in a difficult, helpless, impoverished time. And nobody wanted to help him because of what Absalom was doing. And David says, you Lord, blessed be those individuals who are actually helping me right now and are actually showing mercy and compassion. And maybe that's where David's writing this from, thinking about those even who are helping him, not just those maybe he himself had helped or was willing to help. He also mentions as well, verse three, further blessings that the Lord would bring to those who do such things. He says, the Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness, and you will sustain him on his sickbed. So again, God's blessing of being willing to strengthen and help another. So again, you help someone when they're in a, maybe a helpless or difficult time. Maybe they're even struggling economically because of their illness. Maybe they're going through a health issue or something puts them out of work or they're in a hardship. And so you step in and you offer some way to uphold and help them through that time. And God says, you know what? And then when you're struggling, I'm gonna step in and bring help and healing to you. I'll strengthen you in your time of illness or weakness or sustain you in the midst of your own sickbed when you find yourself in that spot. David going on verse four says, and I said, now he speaks to us about his communication with God. I said, Lord, be merciful to me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Now, notice David seems to be speaking in the past tense there. I have sinned, not I am sinning. I have sinned in the past tense and it's likely what David is doing, which is what we all can kind of do from time to time, is he's reflecting in his own mental struggle over past failures in his life. And again, this would make sense if this was written during the time of Absalom's rebellion and when he was pushed off the throne. And David is knowing, okay, part of what I'm dealing with right now consequentially in my circumstantial problems It has a degree of connection back to my sin with Bathsheba and murdering Uriah and not dealing properly with my family. And and so maybe as some of these hardships and the circumstantial difficulties are playing out in David's life, not that it was right what his family was doing to him, but maybe David in some ways reflecting at this point and he's saying, you know what, man, and he's kind of like reflecting back in the sense of guilt in his own soul. You know, I know that we never struggle with that, where we go back in condemnation and we, we re-bring up to the surface after God buries our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. We bring them back up to the surface again and start thinking through, oh man, I did this and I did that. And and look, sin has its effects upon our lives. And it seems David here may have been kind of struggling with that. And so he's crying out to the Lord for mercy. Lord, I've sinned. I, I, I've, I've done some things that have really damaged my life and brought wounds and difficulty into my situation and here he's saying lord would you please just be merciful to me notice he says verse 4 he says heal my soul my soul he's not talking about his physical health now he spoke about that actually in verse 3 but interesting now he's speaking about the healing of his soul and in the scripture whenever the bible speaks of the soul the bible teaches we're a we might say trichotomous being, God's a Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. And we're made in the image and likeness of God. In a sense, we are somewhat, you might say, a, a threefold being as well, that, that we have our, our spirit, which is the eternal part of us, the, the truest part of who we are, where we are able to have communion and fellowship with God through his Holy Spirit. His spirit comes into our spirit and causes us to come alive spiritually. And again, that's what Paul talked about in the New Testament when he said his spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. And so the spirit is the eternal spiritual part of us. And then of course, the Bible teaches that we have a soul, which in essence would be a reference to our mind and our will and our emotions. And then of course, thirdly, we have a physical body. We have a physical frame. We are body, soul, and spirit. And so David here speaks of, The Lord bringing healing not to his physical body for pain or illness or a sickness on his sickbed, but he says, Lord, heal my soul. And sometimes we need healing in the same way we do for our physical body. We need healing in the inward person because sin damages us inwardly, right? Sin has a very damaging effect upon our lives, just like a disease brings damaging effects to the physical body or a wound or an injury brings a damaging effect to the physical body. Sin brings damage and effect to the soul, to the inward man. Sin has a way of, you know, kind of, you know, wounding us internally. Sin wounds our minds. It defiles and infects our minds in the way that we think, right? It perverts the way that we think. It distorts our our perspectives sin has that damaging effect and david's talking about because he had sinned against god now his soul needed healing sin has a way of you know kind of just polluting us in, in our our emotions and then we struggle with dealing with emotions properly and and it has all these internal damaging effects and david's saying lord i know i'm damaged inside would you heal my soul heal my soul and you know i just encourage you it's one thing we quickly think about heal my body when we're physically suffering or we have pain, but sometimes there's a genuine real need for healing of the soul. And it may be prudent at times, Lord, I know that because of the sins and some of the things that I've done, I've wounded my soul. I've, I've damaged and, and infected my soul. Heal my soul, Lord, my mind. Heal my mind. Heal me internally, God that I wouldn't be affected because of the things that are impacting me in a hurtful way because of what's been done. He says, Lord, I've only sinned ultimately against you, so please heal my soul. He says, verse 5, and my enemies, God, they, they speak evil of me. No doubt this was what was happening in the days of Absalom's rebellion. My enemies, they're speaking evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, He speaks lies, his heart gathers iniquity to itself. And when he goes out, he tells it. Now, when you look at verse five and six, that could be a very clear reference there to Absalom, David's son, right? David is going through some type of a, it seems to some degree, physical ailment at this time probably why he's alluding to some of the things that he is, but he knows more than just needing to be strengthened on his bed of illness or sustained during a time when he's got a fever, he's on the sick bed, that that his deeper issue was that his soul needed some healing. But he then begins to speak about what his enemies were doing at this time in verse five and six. And he says that they were saying of him, when will he die in his name perish? In other words, when's this guy gonna just die so we can just truly put Absalom on the throne? And, you know, he shows the the reality of humanity there, he says, verse six, that he comes to see me, but then speaks lies and his heart gathers iniquity when he goes out and he tells it. The idea is just complete hypocrisy, right? Coming in being two faced. Hey, how you doing? You doing okay? Dale? Can't wait till you're back on the throne. How, you hanging in there, pops? And then walking out afterwards saying, can't wait until he dies. I am renovating the whole palace. You know what I mean? But I'm changing the throne and, and just kind of that complete two faced, very painful, wounded thing. But. That is what human beings do from time to time, is it not? You know, we are fantastic at playing parts and being hypocrites. And sadly, some of us have dealt with some of that pain to the greatest degree from our own family members and some closest to us who say all the right things face-to-face and act a certain way. But then, boy, when they are not in our presence, uh, the true colors of how they really think about us or what their intentions are towards us can sometimes then come out in very hurtful ways, He says, verse 7, and all who hate me whisper together. That's the idea, whisper campaign. They whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now he lies down, he will rise up no more. So they're saying, it seems that David's declining. And hopefully this will be the disease that finally lets him perish. And ultimately we can do away with him. Verse 9, David then makes this statement I referenced earlier. He then says here, look, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So not only is David dealing with pain and betrayal and, you know, mistreatment, and we've all different ways had people mistreat us, right? Maybe a friend or, you know, your job or different situations, people do something that's hurtful to you. But when those closest to you do something to betray you or to wound you, the depth of that kind of pain is just off the charts, right? And this is what David's referring to here. The idea is David's saying, okay, I, I would expect my, my enemies or maybe somebody in the palace staff that didn't like me or, or some detractor out in society to do something. But he's saying, my own son, my own family member, my, my own flesh and blood, my own family member would betray me to that degree, be so deceitful and so hurtful and be willing to, he says, someone who I trusted. He refers to my own familiar friend, he says, in whom I trusted, again, maybe, again, referring, as I said there, to Ahithophel, who was David's trusted advisor for so many years one of his administrative counselors. And now he's working with Absalom and doing things to take away the throne from David. He says, someone who I shared my bread with. And he, and he refers to the deep betrayal this was. He says, he's lifted up his heel against me. He says there in verse nine, the, the picture there is lifting up the heel. Some believe it's a reference to like, like a, a horse, you know, kicking back with, it, with its heel that way. But I think, agree with others, that it's probably more of a reference of the idea of somebody, you know, well, back in the day before I was a nice Christian, if you you talk about a heel stomp, you know, somebody's down and you you give them a heel stomp, you know, that's kind of the idea. Somebody's already down and, and he lifted his, he stomped me, he gave me a heel stomp. I was already down and then he comes by and he just stomps me when I'm down already. And again, the pain that this brought into David's life as he was betrayed in this very hurtful way by someone very, very close to him. And it's always a very painful thing when we go through something like that. Now, ultimately, as David's saying these things and experiencing these things, what's happening? The spirit of the Lord, David has no idea, is working through his experiences and actually bringing forth prophetic statements in the midst of this. Because in John chapter 13, remember, Jesus quotes this actual verse here from Psalm 41, referring to the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, his familiar friend. Remember, Jesus included Judas in everything the other 12 were included in. He heard all the same Bible studies. He got to participate in the ministry. Jesus even let him be the church treasurer and entrusted him with all the resources And participated in this very close, intimate thing, and ultimately Judas became his human betrayer, the one who turned against him. And Jesus quotes this actual statement right here of what his own experiences of betrayal were. So again, if you're here this evening and you have dealt with or are dealing with still the difficulty, maybe even the healing you need in your own soul because of some bitter, painful betrayal of a family member or a close friend or someone who you never thought would betray you and turn against you and hurt you. You're dealing with something that David understands and David dealt with. And more, you're dealing with something actually that Jesus himself experienced. And so Jesus understands. And the best thing to do is to bring that to him because he can help you process it because he's actually experienced it in the flesh himself. He knows the emotions and the struggles that go on with that as he himself experienced it in his own humanity like us. David says, verse 10, speaking now to the Lord about this, he says, but you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up. That's why I think it was a reference to the heel stomp because David says, Lord, I just got stomped by this person. They just stomped me with their heel. So Lord, please, would you pick me back up? Pick me back up, he says. Lord, I am beat up and down and out. Lord, would you raise me back up? Now, notice what David says at the end of verse ten: that I may repay them. And he says them in plural. Now, it's easy to read David's words there and think that the idea it almost sounds like conflicted or contradictory. Wait a minute, you're asking for mercy from the Lord, asking the Lord to raise you back up so that you can pay vengeance on somebody else. It almost seems like, well, wait a minute, David. That's kind of an awful quick turn on the uh, idea there. But understand what David is referring to here when he says, Lord, raise me back up so that I can repay them. He's speaking from his role, not just as a person, as a follower of the Lord, but he's speaking from the perspective of his role as knowing he was the rightful anointed shepherd king of Israel, who's been pushed off his throne. And because he's been pushed off his throne and someone has usurped the throne, who is just harming and hurting the people, and David was a shepherd-hearted king, David realized, as long as I have been pushed off the throne and am in this situation, the people are going to suffer and people are getting away with wicked rebellion. So he's in essence praying here, Lord, I know that though things have happened, I know that I am the rightful king. So Lord, would you raise me back up? What does the Bible say? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up in due time. So David's asking, Lord, would you raise me back up to my role and put me back on the throne as the king where I'm supposed to be? And he says that I may repay them. The idea there is he's not asking for personal vengeance, but he's asking that God may put him back on the throne as the king so that he can bring about civil justice as a government ruler because he knew that's what was best for the people. See, the Bible nowhere encourages us to take personal vengeance upon people who harm us. But the Bible very clearly teaches that civil justice against immoral, wicked things that happen in society are to be judged and dealt with and that people are to be adequately paid. Romans 13, verse Peter 2, other places are very clear, all the Old Testament in teaching very evidently that civil justice is appropriate. When someone violates the law and is doing harmful things to a society, they should be justly punished civilly. That's what the Bible teaches. And David's saying, as a king, Lord, raise me back up so that I can make things right for my position of civil justice upon the throne. That's the idea of what he's referring to here. He goes on, verse 11, to say, by this, God, I will know that you are well-pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me. So, Lord, I know my enemy may not go away, but, Lord, if you don't let my enemy succeed, don't let my enemy triumph over me. David knew he'd always have enemies But he just didn't want his enemies triumphing over him. He wanted to be able to triumph over the opposition. And he says, Lord, by you helping me triumph in victory, I'll know that's an evidence that your favor is with me and you're pleased with what I'm doing, that you're not letting me suffer defeat. Verse 12, as for me, God, he says, you uphold my integrity because David's integrity was certainly being trashed and questioned, but he says, Lord, you know my integrity. And again, that's where integrity takes its root between you and God. Ultimately, not between you and others. Integrity is something that begins with us and the Lord. He knows what's true of us. He says, so Lord, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. And then he concludes, as David often does, turning back away from the problems, taking his eyes off of the circumstantial challenges, whether it's the issues he's dealing with or his own personal struggles. And he always, David has this wonderful way as a man after God's own heart to always put his focus back on the Lord. David was a master of just worshiping his way through problems. The one thing you learn from David, life's full of problems. You're going to have enemies. There's going to be issues. You're going to fail. Just worship your way through it. You just keep worshiping God and it all works out in the end. And David here, look how he concludes. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. He says, amen and amen. Now, Psalm 42 here, we're told. Uh, is a psalm to the chief musician. It says it's a contemplation of the sons of Korah. Now, again, I don't know if it's fair to say that the uh, prescripts at the beginning of the psalms, we can necessarily say are inspired and were in the original manuscripts. So uh, was this written by the sons of Korah? Do we believe it was written by the sons of Korah? We're not even certain exactly who the sons of Korah are. Uh, so we can't be certain. Is this a Psalm that could have been written by David and then given as a contemplation to the sons of Korah who expanded upon it? The reason I'm saying that is this, when you read Psalm 42, it is extremely David-like. So ultimately we know the author behind everything in the word of God is who? The Holy Spirit, right? So so, so that part's settled. Who the human pen was that God used from time to time you know, that's open for debate. God uses different personalities, but it was ultimately his spirit. But some of the things that are spoken of in here, which are references to sheep and shepherds in some ways and animals. I mean, I can so picture David at least participating. Maybe he gave a line or two to the sons of Korah if they wrote this and said, well, look, let me give you an idea or two because I've seen these things as David, remember, was a shepherd and we'll see that as we go through it. So David begins speaking about here the person, again, I'm saying David already, forgive me if, if you don't agree with that, but uh, the writer here begins by referring to finding his, uh, uh, you know, uh, sustainment or satisfaction in God and in God alone. Something that really we all should seek to aspire towards, looking to be renewed and refreshed by God in his presence. He says, verse 1 As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul. For you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, we're going to see as we go through the psalm, the writer is saying these things because the writer has been pushed outside of Jerusalem. So again, this could be a reason why this is David pushed outside of Jerusalem where the temple was, which was where the presence of God, remember, was manifest in the temple So people reference the temple as the place of where God's Shekinah glory and the Kabbad, the presence of God and his glory was. And the writer has been pushed away from that. And he's longing to be back close to the house of the Lord and to be with the people of God again. So he begins to describe here this longing within his soul for God. And he uses again a picture from nature of the deer. Running through the wilderness. And again, keep in mind, deers aren't like camels and some other animals. They can't go a long time without drinking. Like you and I, they need to have their thirst drive satisfied. And so here the picture is like the deer panting after the water brooks, longing, strongly desiring because of that thirst drive to get water to be refreshed in order to keep functioning and not to faint. He says, just like that deer longs and pants after the drink of water, he says, so pants my soul, my inward person, for you, God. My soul, he says, verse 2 directly, thirsts for God, for the living God. You know, the Bible uses this picture of how, just like we have a hunger drive, and just like we have a thirst drive, and, and these natural biological drives that God has put into our body, that That drive is what causes us to be doing things to have that drive fulfilled and satisfied. Well, the Bible teaches in the same way we have a hunger for food, that we also have in a sense a a hunger and need for God. In the same way we have a thirst drive that we have to drink in order to survive and to not faint, that there's actually a a spiritual thirst that's within us for God. And let me just say, the thirst drive is much stronger than the hunger drive, right? We know that. You can go much longer without Food, than you can drinking water. The strongest of our biological drives is a thirst drive. And so it's interesting that the Holy Spirit uses this picture of the longing that a person has deep within their soul for God. He says, my soul pants and thirsts after you, God, to have an experience with you, and only you can satisfy that thirst. And see, this is the great dilemma of humanity, and we knew it for a while before we knew the Lord as Savior and we're walking with him, right? It is... People all have this internal thirst for God within their soul, whether they know it or not. And so we spend much of our life doing what? Drinking from all these different wells out there in the world, right? So we drink from this well, we, we party, we try that, we try this, we try relationships with people, we try you know, career pursuits, we try money, we try materialism, we try substances and drugs and alcohol, and, and we try all these things and we just keep drinking from all these wells in the world, right, that just have polluted water. And all we realize is all this is doing is it's like drinking bad water. It's having a really bad effect upon my life. And, and, and it's not even quenching my thirst. I'm constantly still thirsty. Why am I still thirsty? Well, the reason is because you can't fulfill one drive with something that's intended to fulfill another drive, right? If you are super, super thirsty parts you haven't drank for days and you're in a desert wilderness, and I show up with a Carluccio's grandma pie pizza, which if you were hungry, you would devour. And I say, look, I brought you Carluccios, man. You would say, that's not going to work. I need water. (laughs) All I want, only thing that's going to satisfy this drive is water. Food isn't going to fulfill this drive. And see, we have a thirst and a drive and a need for God. Nothing fills that but God. No person can fulfill that. No pursuit can fulfill that. No relationship, no substance, no pleasure. Nothing can fulfill that need in our life. And we will continue to be empty and thirsting and thirsting and thirsting. I wonder what is wrong with me? What am I missing? Until that thirst is fulfilled by God and it's a, it's an ongoing thirst that we might continue to long for more of an experience with God and here the writer speaks about that very reality that he had come to discover he says i know what i'm longing for my soul is longing for you god for for the living god you know jesus ultimately uses this same analogy remember in the new testament where he speaks to the woman at the well and he encounters her there at the well and she did it a very immoral lifestyle and he could see she was empty but there she was at the well collecting water And Jesus was an incredible teacher because he always found ways to connect with people with things that they understood. In John 3, he talked about the religious man about being born again. Oh, you gotta be born again. You gotta be born again. You gotta be born again. In John chapter four, in the next chapter, he meets a woman who's not religious. She's extremely immoral and worldly. Jesus says nothing about being born again. He speaks to her on her terms and preaches the gospel to her on her terms. Never uses the word born again, but somehow she came to know Jesus too. Because they're spiritual analogies. So Jesus said to her, if you drink from this water, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink from the water that I give, that's living water. It will quench your inner thirst and you'll never thirst again. You'll finally be fulfilled, right? And he used that analogy of a spiritual thirst. He saw she was thirsty and she was drinking from the wells of the world and she was so miserable. And Jesus spoke to her in a way that she could understand, right? He communicated. In John 7, Jesus says that directly. He says in John 7, 37, If any man thirst, let him come unto me, he says, and drink. That, that's the essence there. Lord, I just, I feel empty, thirsty. Well, it's coming to Jesus. Drinking from Jesus, letting Jesus by the living water of his spirit satisfy that inner thirst in your life. This is what the psalmist was longing for. My soul thirsts for God. That's what our soul is ultimately thirsting for, for an experience with God, whether we've recognized it yet or not. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? Again, thinking of coming and being at the temple again. He says, my tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, where is your God? The idea is, you know, where is your God in the sense of like, so where's your God? Here you are struggling. You're out here in the wilderness. You've been pushed away from the temple. Uh, you know, kind of the mockery. Where's your God at now? And that's... A lot of times, sadly, the way people like to enjoy taunting the people of God, right? That's kind of the idea. Well, where's your God anyway? It kind of seems like God's abandoned you. Where's your God at? I thought you said God's going to take care of you. And and when people want to taunt and persecute, this is kind of the idea. Seems like he's abandoned you. Why isn't your God helping? Where is he? He says, verse four, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me for I used to go with the multitude He says, when I went, notice, to the house of God, to the temple, to the place where people went together collectively to worship with a voice of joy and praise with the multitude that kept the pilgrim feast. So again, whether David here, the writer, he's referring to reflecting back to the time when they were having regular experiences with God. Appearing before God, showing up at the temple, he says, oh, I, I think back and man, though I'm not there near the temple now and I've been pushed away, he says, man, my heart longs and I remember the time, he says, as I pour out my soul, he says, I remember when I used to get to go with the multitude.'" And I used to get to go to the house of God with joy and praise and the multitude. We'd go there and we'd keep the feast of Pentecost or the feast of uh, you know, Passover. And we would just worship God and hear his word. And we'd sing to the Lord and we'd experience his presence and the fellowship of the people of God. And he's longing, longing within for that time of experiencing being in the house of the Lord. Being with the people of God worshiping and encountering the God of the house in the house of God. And he's saying, man, I miss that. Oh, I just, I can't wait. I am longing, longing to be able to be back in the house of God and with the people of God and experiencing God's presence in that special way. He's mourning literally that he's unable to go to the house of the Lord and to be with the people of God and worship. It's actually something that was a great grief to him that he couldn't get there circumstantially. He was somehow being kept from it. You know, I look at that and I think, man, would the God that he would give to us all that kind of heart, not only be panning after the Lord, that our soul would thirst for God, but that we would actually look at being in the house of God as the people of God in that way. Oh, I'm just, it kills me when I can't be in church. <laughs> oh, I mean, oh, oh, I, I, oh, I'm so bummed that I can't go to the prayer meeting. You know, oh, I just, I can't wait. I haven't been able to be there for the last week because this happened or I was sick or, you know, I had to work that and and that we would have that heart. To be honest, tragically, too often God's people are usually real quick at finding petty excuses not to go to the house of God. You know, we get a hangnail and somehow we can't make it to church that day or something. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here on a Wednesday night. But look at the heart here of someone in tune with the Lord. They were grieved when they couldn't be with God's people. And you know, to some degree, I mean, I guess for all of us who can connect, at least in our mind, he's talking about remembering here. You know, when we first got saved, I don't know about you, I definitely can remember the early days of when I first became a Christian. That's what it was like for me. Nobody even had to say to me, "Hey, you should go to church. You should go to church. You should go to the Bible studies. You should go." Every single time the door was open, I couldn't wait to be there. I couldn't just there was something magnetic about the presence of God among the people of God that it was just what we're doing. OK, I'm there again. Yeah. And, and there's just something about that. Right. Because we want to experience the presence of God when we have that kind of hunger. Man, would to God that he would give that to us? I mean, here I read the words of this psalmist. What a great heart. He's so sad that he can't be there. And notice it was affecting him. He says, verse five, why are you downcast or cast down? O my soul. Why are you disquieted within me or disturbed? the ideas? Hope in God for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. So he's referring to his struggle. Notice within he was feeling cast down and he uses the word disquieted. Some of your transitions may render that uh, disturbed. The idea is he's speaking about feeling depressed, and feeling all agitated and disturbed within. I know that's never happened to any of us, probably hard to relate to. But he says, why do I feel like this? Why do I feel so cast down and depressed and disturbed and and just upset and miserable within? What does it matter with me? Again, he's struggling with his own mental thoughts and his emotions, and sometimes, you know, that's the problem with our soul, is our soul can get really conflicted sometimes, And we have all these thoughts and feelings and emotions, and and we go through all this range of different things. And sometimes we just find ourselves miserable and upset and depressed, and we don't even know why we're depressed sometimes. Why why am I like this? Why do I just feel like this dark cloud is is all around me? You know, it's interesting, the term that he uses there, verse 5, about being cast down, and this is why I think maybe David potentially could have written this, as David was a shepherd, because it's an inference literally to what would happen with sheep. If you ever heard of what can happen to a sheep before, a sheep can become cast or a cast down sheep. And what that refers to is that sheep potentially at times, because of their own just negligence, not paying attention or laziness, they actually can go from laying on their side to if they roll over just a little bit too much onto their back, then that's called a cast sheep. And when a sheep rolls over onto its back, it is not physically nimble enough nor smart enough to know how to get off of its back. So it stays there in that cast position. It's called a cast sheep. And literally, with its legs up in the air, going like this. And within 24 hours, a sheep will die in that cast position if someone doesn't not come and assist it to restore the sheep back up to its right standing again. Because gases build up in its stomach, and it literally ends up dying within 24 hours. And it does not know how to get itself back out of that cast down position. Is interesting because David says in Psalm 23, the Lord restores my soul. The idea is David saying, I was in this cast position and the Lord restored me. He got me out of the depression. He got me out of the disturbed condition. He, he put me back up as a good shepherd. That's what a shepherd would do. If he saw a sheep like that, he, I got to get that sheep back up. I can't leave him in that position. But that's the idea, like a cast sheep, just feeling utterly helpless and hopeless. And real, that can happen, right? We can sometimes mentally become so depressed in our feelings and our moods in a dark place that we can let our mind go to where all of a sudden we become so disturbed we're like a cash sheep we're literally just paralyzed in our own depression and we're just stuck there and we don't even know how to turn ourselves back up and and get out of it and so what does the psalmist do here notice he starts talking to himself he says what are you doing soul why are you so cast down What, what are you doing And then he starts coaching himself. So again, it's spiritual to talk to yourself. He says, hope in God for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. He says, look, maybe you are hopeless. That's okay. Hope in God. Then I feel utterly hopeless. That's why I'm so depressed. Okay. Maybe we, you are hopeless. Maybe your situation is hopeless. But God is a God of hope. So he says, how do you get yourself out of that? Mentally, emotionally, just put your hope in God. God, I thank you that you can do things miraculously that nobody would ever be able to do humanly. I um, I put my hope in you, God. And I'm just gonna praise you because at least you give me some option still because you're God. And he says, I'm just gonna start hoping in God. He says, hope in God for notice the help of his countenance or his favor or face shining upon you. He says, verse six, oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I'll remember you from the land of Jordan, which is in the northern area, from the heights of Hermon, or the Mount Hermon area, from the hill of Mazar. Now, this is, you can tell why he's been circumstantially separated from the temple. Where he refers to being at, remembering God, he says, from the Jordan and from the heights of Mount Hermon, that's all the way up in the far north of Israel, on the border. And so he's, the idea is he's referring to being very far separated from Jerusalem where the temple was. So he's circumstantially separated from where the presence of God was. Thankfully today, God's presence isn't a circumstantial thing. It's more of a heart condition thing for us to be able to experience the presence. He says, I'll remember you, Lord, even if I can't be there, I'll still reflect upon you from where I am. To worship you, he says. Deep calls unto deep, but the noise of your waterfalls, and there is where the snow runoff would come into the water down into the Jordan. So perhaps he's looking at the deep waterfalls coming over the cliff. All your waves and billows have gone over me, and perhaps there the idea is as he sees these heavy crashing waves of the of the snow runoff from Mount Hermon that flow into the Jordan River to give it a strong current. He's saying, Lord, this is what I feel like. I feel like right now I'm buried. Imagine if you stand under, I've never been to Niagara Falls yet, but that thing looks pretty powerful. And just the water coming, crashing down. He says, that's what I feel like, God. I feel like that I'm just under all these problematic struggles in my thoughts, and my mind, and I just feel like I'm stuck under a waterfall. And it's just getting deeper and deeper. But notice, what does he do? He reflects. He says, verse 8, but the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. I can know every day. God still loves me. No matter how bad the waterfalls are coming down of the difficulties in our life, isn't it great as a child of God to know you may be under the waterfall of constant just feeling bombarded and drowned by your struggles and personal problems. But still every day you can get up in the day and know God still loves me and God's still going to be kind to me just because that's who he is. He's loving and he's kind no matter what others are doing or what I'm going through. And he says, and therefore, verse eight, and in the night, his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So I'm gonna know he loves me and that he's gonna be kind to me each day. And I'm gonna end the night, he says, by just worshiping the Lord, by just singing to the Lord. What a great way to end the day. You know, you can't sleep at night, just start singing and worshiping the Lord and talking to God, a prayer, he says, to the God of my life. I will say to you, to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Again, he felt like he had been abandoned in his circumstances. Why do I go mourning because of the oppressions of my enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemy reproaches me while they say of me all day long, where is your God? Now, I want you to notice there. Do you see the constant shift in gears that's going on? One, one moment, I mean, he's worshiping God and, and I'm thank you, God, that you're loving and kind. And I'm going to pray when I go to bed tonight and I'm going to worship. And then literally, doesn't this make you feel normal? Literally the next sentence, he's back into God, you're my rock. But why have you forgotten me? God, why have you? I feel like you've abandoned me and all oh, my enemies are doing this. And I mean, just, just like a roller coaster, right? It, of emotions and thoughts you know, I have one word of commentary on that. You're normal. You're normal. All people of God go through that. And look, I say that to say this. You may not need a pill. Be careful. Too often. Oh, I got this issue. I got that issue. I got this. issue. We all have issues. We are broken in our soul. Even the godliest men and women in the word of God and through human history felt depressed, felt discouraged, went through traumatic experiences, went through painful, hard, difficult things, and they sought God to heal their soul, to give them strength. And again, I just say this, don't exaggerate. In an unhealthy way for yourself, the fact that you feel at times conflicted within, disturbed, disquieted, depressed, we all do. We all do. You know, I just said to Ryan that we were driving around, and I just said to them that we were talking about you know from week to week. And I said, look, f- for over two decades now, I said, uh, Monday's is my full day off. The reason I do that is because I wake up Monday morning, and again, I'm confused if I'm called to ministry, and all day long, I have to spend all day Monday. Allowing the Lord to bring me out of my own discouragement and depression and convince me to one more week. <laughs> one more week. All right, I'll try it for one more week. Lord. All right, I'll show up Wednesday night and teach one more Bible study. And, and, you know, we all in different ways go through these ranges of feelings and thoughts and emotions. I mean, look how he ends this psalm here. Verse 11. Look what he goes right back to. Why are you cast down oh my soul? <laughs> Didn't we already talk about this? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance. Again, he comes back to, why are you doing this to yourself? It's self-talk. Sometimes, you know, spiritually, this is apparently something of the Holy Spirit that sometimes we got to talk to our own soul. We got we to kind of be our own counselor. We know the truth of God and the truth of God's word. Sometimes we have to say to ourselves, hey, why are you allowing yourself to be so discouraged? Why are you allowing yourself to be so depressed? Why are you allowing yourself to be just so completely despondent? You know God. God loves you. God's done a lot of good things in your life. And God's going to help you no matter what it is. He says, just I can hope in God and praise him for the help that he is going to bring into my life. Let's stand. Let's pray together.